Okay, hi, it's the 8th of May, 2018, and this is the latest in the series of short talks I've been giving under the rubric of Timothy Snyder Speaks. What I wanna talk about today is this word collusion. Not so much the thing collusion, but the word collusion. Because I think if we unpack the word, if we think about the word, it'll help us to figure out what's actually going on. So. What is the word collusion? Why do we all talk about collusion so much? The word collusion is, first of all, a legal strategy. If the President of the United States talks about collusion, 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 and we talk about collusion, 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 then what we're not talking about are actual criminal offenses like tax evasion, uh, perjury, obstruction of justice, conspiracy, the kinds of things that uh, very close members of Trump's team have already been indicted for, and the kinds of things that if the president is to be indicted, he would also be indicted for. So rather than talking about actual crimes, the word collusion allows us to talk about something which is not a legal category, which is not a crime. And that's why the president denies specifically collusion. By using the word collusion, he sets the terms of the debate in a non-legal way. Um, and he asks us to prove something which is not a crime. So we're thinking about the wrong things. The second way the word collusion works is historical. It draws us away from what actually happens um, and presents a kind of fantasy picture instead. Because here's the thing, collusion involves two equals, like, let's say, cooperation or coordination, that co at the beginning suggests that two people or two sides are coming together to do something. That's not really what happened in the 2000s. That's in the 2010s. That's not really how the Russians elevated Mr. Trump to the office of the presidency. It's not that he was an equal partner and they were an equal partner. It's much more like he was a tool, an instrument, and a tactic and they had a philosophy, a strategy, and a plan. So what I'd like to do is try to break away for a few minutes from our American point of view, from our American framing, because collusion is precisely an American framing um, that keeps us in the daily news cycle and prevents us from thinking about the background. And just think with you for a few minutes about the background. Um, this, by the way, is a little bit of the argument of my new book, The Road to Unfreedom. And if anything that I say sounds new to you, um, please check it out in, in the book because there I go on about all this at great length and there are lots of notes and you can check the sources and so on. So it's better to think about this, I think, from a Russian point of view, to start from the Russian sources, to, to take a step back, to go back a few years and think about a Russian philosophy, a Russian strategy, a Russian plan, if we do those things, then the whole case of Trump comes into much clearer focus. So what's the philosophy? The philosophy is this, that uh, democracy is a ritual to keep a certain leader in office, that social advancement is impossible uh, because there's no rule of law, so there's no reason why wealth inequality shouldn't just remain exactly the way it is, and there's no truth in the world. There's no such thing as a fact. They're just beliefs. They're just opinions. And politics is just about manipulating opinions. 
Those are the ideas. In the book, I go on about them at much greater length. And I think in the next segment, I'm going to talk about why ideas matter in the 21st century. But for the moment, let's just take it for granted. That's the philosophy. Now, that philosophical background of Russia's leaders, of Mr. Putin and others, helps to explain why Mr. Trump is such an ideal vehicle. Because Mr. Trump inhabits a world where there are no facts. Mr. Trump inhabits a world where wealth inequality is, is, is normal. And Mr. Trump also inhabits a world where democracy, as we understand it, is not really a thing. Strategy. So Mr. Putin, when he comes back to the office of the presidency with these kinds of ideas in 2012, also has a strategy, which he announces in a whole series of articles. There's no secret about this. What's the strategy? The strategy is something which I call in the book, strategic relativism. The notion is, if Russia doesn't have a future, then no one else should have a future either. How does Russia not have a future? Well, first of all, if you are a Russian citizen, if you're a citizen of the Russian Federation, you don't have a future in the normal sense of social advancement. Because Russia is a country with extreme wealth inequality, where the state is run by a single oligarchical clan, and where there's no rule of law, you can't really expect that you will do better, or that your children will do better than you. That's completely off the table. In that sense, there's no future. But also, politically, there's no future. Precisely because Mr. Putin has adopted the philosophy that he has, that he's turned democracy into a kind of ritual, nobody knows in Russia what's going to happen after Mr. Putin. The good thing about democracy is it allows us to, to take for granted that after leader X, there will be leader Y. Once you do away with democracy, or once you create, turn democracy into a ritual, um, which is meant to precisely to enthrone you term after term, it's then not clear exactly how you'll be replaced after you die or after you're overthrown. So in that sense, Russia also doesn't have a future. How do you deal with not having a future, either for society or for the political system? You create a foreign policy of strategic relativism. You say, if we can't have it, nobody else can have it either. If we can't have democracy, we're going to say democracy is a joke for everybody. If we can't have the rule of law, we're going to say the rule of a law is a joke for everybody. And the reason why this is relativism is that you're not trying to be better than everybody else. You're trying to make everybody else as bad as you. But it's also relativism in the sense that your main weapon is to say, nothing's true, there are no facts, doubt everything, be skeptical about everything, be cynical about your leaders, the rule of law is a joke, democracy is a joke, these things don't really exist. That acid, that ability to dissolve things, then becomes your foreign policy. And the, stra the strategy is first directed at, not, at, not the Americans, it's first directed at the Europeans, because the European Union is closer to Russia, it's actually more important than the United States in lots of different ways. And so we see, beginning in 2013, the Russian Federation beginning to support the Front National in France. Um, later it will support the extreme right in Germany. It supports Brexit in the UK. Um, and in general, it tries to create, by way of the internet and by way of television, an information climate where everybody is skeptical about the future, about the European Union, about the rule of law, and about democracy. So that's the strategy, and it's applied first in Europe. What's the plan, or what are the tactics? The tactics come clearly into view, and these are the next couple chapters in the book, when we see how Russia deals with Ukraine in 2014 and 2015. In the factual world, what happens in Ukraine is, is pretty straightforward. 
Um, Ukrainians want to move closer to the European Union. Russia invades the country. But if we look at the non-factual world, if we look at how Russia applies its philosophy and its strategy, we then see some tactics which are very revealing about what Russia will do with Mr. Trump um, against the United States of America. So let me give you some examples of some tactics. The first is a head of state who simply denies reality, what I call in the book implausible deniability. So when Mr. Putin sends the Russian army to invade Ukraine, he simply denies that he's doing so, which is a little bit unusual, but it's a tactic because if you stand up and you deny something that every reporter knows is true, you put the profession of journalism and indeed the whole media into a difficult position. Because on the one hand, you could actually cover the facts of the war, which requires money and effort, and it's risky. On the other hand, you can cover this fantastically charismatic leader who seems to have the amazing power to bend reality to his will, who can deny factuality itself, who can turn reality into a television show. That's very tempting, and that's what most of the Western media actually did. Instead of covering an actually existing war in the real world, people preferred to watch a reality television show where a head of state um, basically created an alternative world. Now, that should sound familiar because that is, of course, how Mr. Trump also governs. He's a head of state who constantly generates unreality, thereby forcing reporters into this impossible choice. Do you, do you get into the, uh, the television drama or do you actually cover real issues, which in the U.S. would be things like wealth inequality, opioid abuse, and, and so on. A second example of a tactic in Ukraine, which is also now very familiar in the U.S., is what I call in the book cacophony. That is, something happens that's out of your control, because of course you don't control everything by lying about it. Something happens that's out of your control, and the way you react to it is you throw a whole bunch of fictions around it so that nobody's then really sure what's actually happened. So in the Russian invasion of Ukraine, this is MH17. This is the civilian airliner which Russian forces shot down over Ukraine while they were invading the country. So what the Russian media does is when this happens, um, this, as it were, irreducibly real thing happens, people die. You attack it, not by directly denying it, but from the flanks. You come up with a whole bunch of different versions, like the Ukrainians did it by accident trying to shoot down Mr. Putin's airplane. Um, the Ukrainians did it because a certain Ukrainian Jewish oligarch uh, controls the airways. The Ukrainians did it by accident from the ground. NATO did it from the air. You come up with a whole bunch of different variants, none of which you even pretend have any factual basis, but they serve as a kind of discursive shrapnel. They just cloud everything up. And at the end of the day, and I mean literally at the end of that day, because this starts on the day the plane is shot down, at the end of the day, no one is exactly sure what's going on. And no one is sure who's responsible even for this very simple thing. So in the US, this happens uh, during Mr. Trump's campaign during the Access Hollywood incident. Remember for a moment, for half an hour, everybody thought that Access Hollywood, the tape where Mr. Trump advocates sexually assaulting women, that this would end his campaign. Mr. Trump seemed to think it, Mr. Pence seemed to think it, the Democrats seemed to think it, the commentariat seemed to think it. Why didn't that happen? It didn't happen because half an hour after that tape was released, Russian bots and Russian trolls and others began to spread other versions, fictions, like Hillary Clinton is a pimp who sells sex with children, or 
John Podesta takes part in wild rituals where he consumes human bodily fluids. And those things, although completely fictional, surround the real event, which is Mr. Trump thinks that it's okay to sexually assault women, and confuse it to the point where no one knows what actually happened. And in a way, the whole Access Hollywood event never takes place because it never actually reaches the people that it's supposed to reach. Now, we experienced that as a weird American event. Access Hollywood seemed it was going to matter and then suddenly it didn't matter at all. What I'm trying to explain here is that if we keep in mind the whole background, the Russian philosophy about fictionality, the Russian strategy about strategic relativism, and Russian tactics, um, which involve this kind of discursive and propagandistic trick, it all makes a whole lot more sense. It all, it all falls into place. Um, and, and this is, in a way, a, a plea for history, right? Because what history allows us to do, a history even of the 2010s of recent events allows us to do, is get out of this daily news cycle where, we're, where we're, how we think about it is framed in terms of the way our leaders wanted to be framed. Collusion, not collusion. Um, you know, so what, what the book then does in the end is it runs through 2016 with all of this in the background. And so we're not surprised then to see that Mr. Trump only exists um, at all as a public figure thanks to Russian money from the 1990s and the 2000s. People often ask, I mean, could tr did Russian influence really make a difference? Well, think about it this way. If, if Russian money, and I go into this in great length in the book, doesn't rescue Mr. Trump, who is a total failure as a real estate developer. If Russian money doesn't rescue him, he doesn't even exist as a public figure. There's no logical possibility that he could have become president without Russia. And then the next step is we think about the personnel, <clears throat> whether it's Manafort or Papadopoulos or Flynn or Kushner or Ross. It's astonishing um, the extent to which the people around Mr. Trump were morally, politically, and financially connected to the Russian Federation. Nothing like that has ever happened before. And then, of course, when we get to the campaign during 2016, Democrats and Republicans alike marveled at the fact that Mr. Trump didn't seem to have a traditional campaign. But what he did have um, was all kinds of support from the rear, or all kinds of support in the world of cyber. The public opinion polls were in favor of Secretary Clinton, but the bots were decidedly on, on the side of Mr. Trump. And that turns out to matter, whether it's Russian intelligence agencies hacking and leaking emails, as I mentioned, or whether it's Russia's internet research agency working in social media to figure out what, what frightens and what motivates America and going on a social media offensive from September to early November of 2016. Either way, Mr. Trump had a campaign which wasn't his. He was in a way just kind of going along for the ride. So the idea that Mr. Trump colluded doesn't really make a lot of sense because he wasn't an equal partner. Mr. Trump was not an equal. And this is the thing that Americans, I think, we have really a hard time understanding because we want to be number one. Um, you know, we're in the worst case, we want to be cooperating with someone else. In this case, there's not, we're not number one. Um, we're not cooperating. In this case, we're just being brought along. Mr. Trump is just being brought along. He's not capable of colluding. He's not an important enough person to collude with the Russian Federation. He's an instrument. He's a tactic that makes sense with the strategy. He's an instrument that makes sense with the philosophy. In light of all that, it, it makes sense. At the end of the day, Mr. Trump can't collude. Mr. Trump is the payload of a Russian cyber weapon. The payload of a weapon doesn't collude. It, it just does damage.